I'm going to ask you to turn with me tonight to the Old Testament book of Genesis, chapter 45. I was listening with open ears to our pastor in the introductory remarks as he laid before us the danger of distraction. Because it's written right here on my notes. The title of my message tonight, The Danger of Distraction. And the text is found out of the life of Joseph. In Joseph chapter 45, we pick up the life of Joseph after he has been sold into slavery by his brothers. He has spent a tour of duty in the prison system of Egypt, and because of his impeccable character and his incredible giftedness, God has promoted him out of the prison to second in command to one of the greatest nations on earth. He is prime minister, second only to Pharaoh a Jew, a Hebrew, in that very powerful position. His brothers who, ha- who sold him into slavery years before have come to Egypt to buy grain because of the, of the famine in the land. And Egypt, because of the wisdom of Joseph, has stored enough grain not only to have enough for themselves, but to sell to surrounding nations. And as our text opens, Joseph has just revealed himself to his brothers who stand drop-jawed in front of him. And Joseph inquires about their their dad, Jacob. Is he still alive and how is he doing? And upon hearing that their aging father is still alive, Joseph begins to make plans to send his brothers back to Canaan to get their aging dad and all that he has and all of the family and bring them to reside in Egypt. And as our text opens, they are making preparations to go get Jacob and the rest of the family. Pharaoh has now been brought into the process. He's been told about Joseph's past and about Joseph's family, and he applauds that, and he's delighted that Joseph is going to bring his remaining family members to Egypt. In fact, he even offers them the prime real estate in Egypt, the land of Goshen, which would be a a primary place to live. And so we pick up In verse 17, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Now, you're commanded, do this, take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones 
and your wives, bring your father and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so. That's the brothers, the brothers that had sold Joseph into slavery. They did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave all of them to each man changes of garments. But to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. Now remember that Benjamin is Joseph's blood brother. And so Benjamin has a a special place in Joseph's heart. He loves him more than any of the other brothers. So he makes sure he's taken care of. And he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father and for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. Now, isn't that an interesting thing for Joseph to say to his brothers? Now, listen to the way King Jim (laughs) translates that. See that you fall not out by the way. See that in verse 24? See that you fall not out by the way. September the 22nd last year, 2015, one of my baseball heroes died. His name was Yogi Berra. I grew up loving Yogi Berra, Mickey Mantle, and that team. He was well known, and he was well known for many things, not the least of which was his chatter behind the plate incessant chatter. And he did it for two reasons. Number one, he did it to encourage his own team. He was always chattering at them, encouraging them, telling them what to do, and and applauding them when they did good. But he also did it to distract the batters. He was notorious for distracting batters. And one day, Hank Aaron came to bat. That time, Hank Aaron, who later won the home run uh, record for Major League Baseball. That time he played for Milwaukee before they went to Atlanta. And Hank Aaron came to bat. Yogi was chattering, chattering, chattering. And he, he said to Hank Aaron, he said, Hank, you got your bat upside down. You're supposed to turn the label where you can see it. Just chatter, chatter, chatter. Well, the next pitch, Hank did nothing with the bat. Next pitch, Hank hits it over the left field fence. And when he rounded third base and came across the plate, he looked at Yogi and said, Yogi, I didn't come up here to read. (laughs) I like Hank Aaron. He refused to be distracted. 
He knew what he was at the plate for. And he wouldn't let the chatter of Yogi Berra or anybody else distract him. But can I say to you that distractions sometimes are not humorous. Sometimes they're deadly. I'm an ex-air traffic controller. Uncle Sam trained me to be an air traffic controller, sent me to the Air Traffic Control Academy in Oklahoma City, sent me to Okinawa for a year and a half to try to keep two planes from occupying the same airspace at the same time. That's a great job, but it's a very pressure-packed job. I was very interested in this uh, uh, article that came out in the New York uh, paper dated September the 26, 2000. And 10. It's a story about, and I, I read the headlines, New York pilot era and air traffic controller distraction resulted in plane crash. And the article reads like this, a series of errors and a distracted air traffic controller led to a tragic plane crash in New York City that took the lives of nine people when a private plane and a tourist helicopter collided in August of 2009. The National Transportation Safety Board, which investigated the plane accident, said both the pilots, both pilots made errors and the air traffic controller was involved in a personal phone call. According to the NS, NTSB, as reported by the Los Angeles Times, Neither of the pilots could see the other aircraft until seconds before they collided. Neither pilot used onboard equipment that would have helped locate nearby aircraft. Meanwhile, now hear this. Meanwhile, the air traffic controller, who was reportedly on a personal phone call while directing traffic, did not give pilots timely information and advisories required for air traffic in the area. According to the NTSB statement, the air traffic controller's phone call distracted him from his air traffic control duties. May I suggest to you that an air traffic controller exists in that tower or in the radar approach control unit are in the center for one reason, and that is to keep two airplanes from occupying the same space at the same time. Here was a controller who was distracted over something insignificant. Now, I take these two, one humorous and one serious example, just to say to us that distractions can be very, very, very costly. And when we hear our text, in Genesis 45, uh, 24, see that you fall not out by the way. I think you'll understand that an accurate interpretation of those verses deal with the subject of distractions. Really, what, what does he mean here? Fall not out by the way. Well, he could mean don't become physically exhausted and stop doing what you're supposed to be doing. You see... It was a long trip from Egypt up to Canaan. There were no super jets. There were no air-conditioned uh, buses. Uh, it was walk or ride a donkey or ride a camel. And, 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 you know, Paul even tells us in Galatians, doesn't he? Don't be weary in well-doing. 
And that could be what Joseph was saying. Don't fall out, by the way, meaning don't get physically exhausted. Don't get so tired that you just quit. I think that's what Hebrews 12 is kind of encouraging us to be aware of when he tells us that we're not involved in a sprint. We're involved in a marathon in a long distance race and therefore we're to lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us and the only race we run with patience is what kind of a race church it's a marathon it's a long distance race and basically what Joseph could be saying here is guys it's a long way up there and a long way back and you got to pace yourselves and don't get tired and quit don't just don't just bail out on me he could have been saying but I don't think he was. Uh, he could have been saying this. Listen, guys, don't start on this mission and change your mind and not go through with the assignment that I've given to you. I mean, that could be what he's saying. Don't fall out, by the way. Meaning, listen, guys, I know you, you may start well and you get out there 100 miles or so and, and, and you may start uh, uh, doubting whether or not this is worth it or not. Listen, guys, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't fall out by the way. Finish what you start. Or he could be saying, don't desert your mission because of fear. He could be saying that. Don't fall out by the way. You're going to get out there and you may run into some bandits. You may run into some mean people. And there you're going to have a, a wagons loaded to go and get Jacob. And there's going to be a lot of uh, expensive stuff. Yeah, and you may, you may get fearful and, and not finish the mission. You know, I'm reminded in 2 Timothy 4, I have a message that I preach. I, I won't preach it this week, but it's called Come Before Winter. But just, just one little vignette out of that message. It, it, it talks in 2 Timothy 4 about a man named Demas. And Demas has an impeccable track record. Colossians 4 uh, talks about him being a fellow servant with Christ. The book of Philemon talks about him in positive terms in his relationship with, with Paul. So Paul had trusted in Philemon. But, but when we come to 2 Timothy, you know what it says about Demas? Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. And, and so we wonder, why in the world did Demas forsake Paul? And, and in, in my best understanding, here, here's the conclusion I've come to. Paul is facing trial for treason. He's about to lose his head in Rome. And, and, and hanging around Paul has become a dangerous adventure in Rome at that particular time in 2 Timothy 4. And I believe that Demas began to weigh the options. Should he stay there and stand with a man facing treason who's going to be executed? Or should he bail out and take the line of least resistance and put comfort before obedience? And I think that's exactly what Demas did. He let his fear take hold of him, and he abandoned the mission of God. And that could be what he's saying here. Don't fall out by the way. That means don't get afraid and not finish the task God's called you to do. But can I tell you, I don't think any of those three suggestions are the best suggestion. You know what I think he's saying here? I think he's saying, guys, don't fall out by the way, meaning this. Guys, don't quarrel among yourselves and fail to do what I told you to do. 
Don't be distracted by your arguing and fussing with each other. See that you don't fall out by the way. You see, here's the problem. Joseph knew these guys too well, didn't he? I mean, he knew them. He had hung around them. He had heard them fuss and fight all of his growing up years. He even remembers the day when they uh, threw him down in the pit intending to kill him and uh, took his coat and dipped it in blood and, and took it to his father and said he's dead and sold Joseph to a caravan. He knew what these guys were capable of doing. He knew that they were ego-driven and egocentric, and he knew that they couldn't get along. And he's saying to them, guys, wake up, wake up, wake up. The mission I'm giving you is too important for you to get involved in eternal conflict, and you can't get along and get the mission done. Let me ask you this. Is that a message the church of Jesus Christ needs to hear today? How many churches can't get the mission done? They're too busy fighting among themselves. You have a wonderful fellowship here, and I'm, I'm so thankful for that. So very thankful. The devil knows that. In early days, I, right now in my Bible reading, I, I do different things every year. But this year I'm reading the book of Acts every week. I read four chapters in Acts a day. I read the book of Acts every week. And whenever Paul wrote a letter in the book of Acts, I read that letter. That's my thrust for the whole year. Now, here's what I'm seeing. That the theme of Acts is not the geographical spread of the gospel, although that's involved in it. But the theme of the book of Acts is the overcoming gospel that overcame every obstacle that the devil threw in its path. And one of the first obstacles the devil threw into the path of the early church was the obstacle of inner church dissension. Acts chapter 6, the Hellenistic widows were arguing with the, with the Hebrew-speaking widows, one saying, I'm getting served, you're getting served, I didn't get served. And you know, and they're mad and fussing at each other. Isn't that terrible? And you know, that's where the deacons came from. They anointed, set apart seven men full of the Holy Spirit. Hey, guys, can I tell you something? If you do what God really wants a deacon to do, you need to be full of the Spirit. Amen. Guys, I love deacons. I'm tell you, I love deacons. Some of my best friends in half a century are my deacons. I love you guys. I thank God for you. But I'm going to tell you, you can't do what God wants you to do in your flesh. You've got to have wisdom and insight. and it, it, it takes wisdom. Hey, God didn't just cause you to serve tables. God caused you, called you to deal with the issues that calls for table serving. He calls you to deal with the issues that underlie the need to serve tables. He causes you to help bring about unity in the body of Christ. Now, so Joseph said, fall not out by the way, because he knew his brothers and he knew the problem they had facing them. As soon as they got back, guess what they had to tell their aging dad? Dad, oh yeah, we forgot to tell you. We lied to you 20-something years ago. We told you your favored son, Joseph, was dead. 
He wasn't dead. He's alive in Egypt. And guess what, Dad? <laughs> He's prime minister. Now, buddy, that was a job. And so he knew what was going through their minds. How are we going to do this? And so he said, guys, don't fall out, by the way. Now, I just want to rehearse with you some of the reasons why they couldn't afford to be distracted from their mission and fall out, by the way. Now, if you're a note taker, here's the first thing. They, they couldn't afford to fall out, by the way. Number one, because they were brothers. Because they were brothers. They couldn't afford to fuss and fight and fall out, by the way. They're brothers. You, you know, family feuds are one of the one of the, one of the most sad things in the world, isn't it? I remember as a kid growing up in Mississippi, we had a large family. My dad had uh, 13 kids. Two of them didn't survive infancy. Uh, there was 11 brothers, had a bunch of, bunch of cousins. I, I buried one of them today. But I, I can remember that we had a couple of the brothers, uh, a brother-in-law and a brother that didn't get along. And when one of them would come and we'd have a family get together and everybody would be there, well, when one of them would come, if the other one was there, he would leave. Isn't that sad? But that's what happened. Hey, I've been in churches. I, I know it can't be like that here. If it is, don't tell me. And if, if, you're to, if you're to blame, don't come up to me and fuss at me. If there's anybody in this church you won't speak to and you walk around, you go the other side, God help you. Now, I don't know who you are, so please, well, you can get mad at me if you want to, but, but I wish you wouldn't. But, but I want to tell you, that's not of God. It's just not. And how in the world can the Spirit of God fall upon a place like that? See that you fall not out, by the way. Listen, they were brothers. First little church I pastored, Beulah Baptist Myrtle, Mississippi. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful church. I, I went there in 1969. There had been a, a, a Pentecostal revival movement came through Myrtle, Mississippi in the 1940s, and it split families right down the middle. It was a oneness Pentecostal movement that believed if you weren't baptized in the name of Jesus and didn't evidence that by speaking in tongues, you weren't saved. It was a radical Pentecostal movement. And it split my Beulah families right down the middle. And, and, and 25 years later, we still had people in two churches that couldn't get along, couldn't speak. They were divided. He said, he said don't fall out, by the way, because you're brothers. Number two, because you are brothers of the king. <laughs> that makes the... That exacerbates the whole situation. Not only are you not brothers, you're brothers of the king. And you need to live and act like brothers of the king. Infighting, murmuring, quarreling are inconsistent with a child of the king. There's just some things I must not do as a child of the king of glory and as a joint heir with the saints of God. One of my favorite professors in seminary was Dr. Richard Mellick. Boy, what a great teacher. 
He wrote Philippians in the New American Commentary. I remember something Dr. Mellet used to say. He said, every time my kids go out on a date or go out anywhere, he said, one of the last things I always say to them is this, remember who you are. You're a Melek. Act like a Melek. And then he would say, but more important, act like a child of God. Ah, they were brothers. They were brothers of the king. But can I say thirdly, they were brothers of the king who had been furnished everything they needed to accomplish their mission. There was no excuses. He said, listen, I'm piled on the wagons. I've given you grain. I've given you everything you need to get up to Canaan and get back. There's not one excuse you have. Everything you need to get the job done, I've put in your lap. Your brother's. You're brothers of the king. And you're brothers of the king that has everything you need provided for you to accomplish your mission. Hey, but that's not the best part. You're brothers. You're brothers of the king. You're brothers of the king fully supplied to accomplish your mission. And lastly, you're brothers of a king who has an important message that must be delivered. You know what he said? He said, go in haste. You know why he said, go in haste? Because the message they had to deliver was too important to mess around with. It was too important to not be told. Now, what was that message? Here it is. Got your, you got your spiritual seatbelt buckled? Here's the message. Number one. Joseph is alive. Number two, Joseph has forgiven us. And number three, Joseph has prepared a place for us. Hey, it doesn't take a theologian to get that message. Amen? I mean, even the deacons can get that. <laughs> Joseph is alive. Can you think of a better message for old aging Jacob to hear? Dad, we want to tell you, Joseph is alive. He didn't die those years ago. We lied about that. We're sorry. We've repented of that. Joseph is alive. And Dad, you won't believe this. But he is prime minister in Egypt, and all he had to do was snap his finger, and all of your sons would have been taken out and beheaded instantly. It's in his power to do that. He's prime minister, Dad. But Dad, Joseph's not only alive. Joseph has forgiven us. He's not holding it against us anymore. He's forgiven us. And dad, you're not going to believe this, dad. He has prepared a place for us in the prime real estate in Egypt. And he's just waiting for us to come and move in. I tell you, he said, you can't fall out by the way. You are brothers. 
You're brothers of the king. You're brothers of the king fully furnished, and you're brothers of the king with a message that is too important not to be told. Now, church, how does that message compare to the message our Heavenly Father has given us a mission to deliver to our world. Here it is. Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen. Jesus is alive. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, and wherein you're saved, how that Christ died for our sins, and that he was buried, and he rose again. That's the gospel. Jesus is alive. The old gospel song has it right. Up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. Hey, if Jesus is not alive, then nothing matters. But if Jesus Christ is alive, then nothing else matters. Jesus is alive. Number two, and Jesus has forgiven us. Hallelujah. On many a tombstone is written one word which summarizes the entire hope of the believer in Jesus Christ. That one word, forgiven. Walk through the cemetery. You see it, forgiven. Forgiven. That message needs to get out and reverberate over all this country and world. Jesus died in order that we can be forgiven. Everyone here today needs to hear and embrace that message. The last marching orders Jesus gave the church was to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, essentially saying Jesus died so that you can be forgiven. Jesus is alive, and Jesus has forgiven us. And church, Jesus has prepared a place for us. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. Where I am, there you may be also. Oh, what a wonderful place. You know, I guess the older you get, have you noticed, guys and ladies, the older you get, what's the very first place you turn to in the paper when you open it? <laughs> you turn to the obituaries, don't you? And you start going down through there. And what's one of the first things you look at? You look at the name, and then what do you look at? The age. And what are you doing? You say, was he older or younger than me, right? We, we all begin to deal with our mortality. You know, everybody in this room, everybody, everybody is going to spend eternity somewhere. We're all eternal beings. We'll either spend eternity 
in heaven with our Lord. We'll spend eternity in a place prepared for the devil and his angels, a place where there is nothing godly, a place of eternal separation and torment. I, uh, last year I read the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn. I, uh, I've recommended that book to a lot of people. I have a lady in our church whose son, uh, an Iraqi veteran, died tragically. She has read that book over and over again. She has purchased, I can't tell you how many copies to give out as a ministry. If you've never read it, do yourself a favor, read that book. I, I was in, uh, up at Billy Graham's Cove, and uh, I may have already told this this week, I don't know. If I do, just forgive me, you know, just overlook my senior moment. But it fits here. I was teaching at the Cove, and I've uh, been up there several times. But this particular time, we went up there not to teach, but to listen to Randy Alcorn teach on heaven he was teaching his book and we were sitting in that beautiful auditorium it'll seat about 400 people and I looked around and most of them were like me and Rose and I commented on the fact there was a lot of gray hair a lot of no hair and I said look at this this is a bunch of old people cramming for the finals <laughs> studying up studying up on where we're going to spend eternity oh can I tell you this words are not adequate to describe what heaven is like the book of revelation is the best human attempt but it fails Streets of gold, that's beautiful. But heaven, how can you describe it? And Jesus said, I've gone to prepare a place for you where you can spend eternity with me. Is it any wonder that Joseph said, don't fall out by the way? Don't get to arguing and fussing. Don't get distracted from the major mission and fail to take the greatest message ever heard. Jesus is alive. Jesus has forgiven us. And Jesus is preparing a place for us. Let's bow for prayer. What an incredible message. We've heard it so often that sometimes familiarity can breed a, a certain sense of passivity and contempt almost. We forget the glorious nature of that message. Just the thought that Jesus conquered the grave. My worst enemy and your worst enemy, 
Jesus defeated our worst enemy, which is death, by conquering the grave. Lord willing, I'm going to talk more about that tomorrow night. But I wonder tonight, have you been distracted? Have you let lesser things pull you away from faithfully sharing that great message with other people? People who desperately are dying because they need to hear that message and believe it. I wonder if there's somebody in your mind and in your heart right now, maybe a family member, maybe a friend, maybe a classmate, who needs to hear that message. Jesus is alive. Jesus has forgiven us. And Jesus has prepared a place for us. I wonder if right now, in each of our hearts, we could make a commitment to say, Lord, I want to make myself available to share that message with my friend or my family member or my classmate or whoever it may be. I wonder if you would join me right now in just recommitting our hearts to faithfully be an ambassador of that message. If you've allowed yourself to be distracted because of some kind of conflict, and I don't know your heart, I don't know what you're walking through, either in your family or in your church, the enemy can step in and put a wedge and, and distract us, and, and we spend all of our time turned inward rather than outward. If that's what's happened to you, would you just repent of that tonight? Ask God to forgive you and to help you to get your priorities straight. If you're here tonight and you've never personally believed that message for yourself, that Jesus is alive and that he forgives and that he's prepared, if, if, that he's prepared a place for you, if, if that's not personal to you, if you can't say tonight, I know if I died tonight, I'd go to heaven that I can't think of a better time or a better place than for you to get that settled than right here on a Tuesday night in an Ignite conference. There are people who love you, people who would be glad to stay with you however long they need to stay with you to help you settle that and get it nailed down. In a moment, we're going to just stand. We're going to worship God. But these altars are open, and, and this staff is here, and and, and, and we don't want anybody to leave tonight with, with their heart not right with God. Whatever that takes, will you just be obedient to him tonight? Don't be distracted. Distractions are deadly. Father, in Jesus' name, I just want to ask you tonight in these moments to bring our thoughts into captivity unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray tonight you would capture our hearts. You would capture our hearts. And Lord, I pray tonight that any distractions that we've allowed to come into our life, you would remind us of those, that you would help us to see them as you see them and help us to turn away from those distractions. Oh God, have your will, have your way. In our lives and in our hearts here tonight, we pray in Jesus' name.